You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. And the problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccine. The health system perpetuates gender inequalities and restrictive gender norms. This stigma, shame, and fear is what drives this disease and keeps it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts. We interview leaders fighting against malaria, polio, HIV AIDS, the opioids epidemic, some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. Hello, and welcome to the Take is Directed podcast. I'm Janet Fleischman, Senior Associate with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. In today's episode, we're going to examine the changing nature of war and conflict and why gender-based violence has become such a central feature in crises around the world. The magnitude of the problem is very stark. One in five women and girls who are internally displaced or refugees experience gender-based violence. In 2019, 34 million women and girls of reproductive age are estimated to be in emergency situations, often explicitly targeted with gender-based violence as a tactic of war designed to traumatize and silence women and undermine the resiliency of communities. Despite the growing global recognition of the urgency of this issue, gender-based violence is still severely underfunded at less than 1% of humanitarian assistance. The CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security recently published its final report called Ending the Cycle of Crisis and Complacency in U.S. Global Health Security, which urges that the U.S. government replace the cycle of crisis and complacency that has long plagued health security preparedness with a doctrine of continuous prevention, protection, and resilience. The report presents an integrated package of seven recommendations to ensure that the United States can manage threats and avoid the catastrophic costs of inaction. One of the recommendations proposes an approach to ensure that the extensive capacities of the U.S. government in the areas of maternal health, reproductive health, family planning, and gender-based violence prevention and response are not left on the sidelines in disordered settings. The commission released a second report, How We Can Better Reach Women and Girls in Crisis, which I authored, which expands upon this recommendation, calling for a categorical shift for the U.S. to prioritize women and girls' health and protection in crisis settings, to advance resiliency and health security. And the report proposes an approach to harness U.S. government capacities and to catalyze action for women and girls. Both of the reports are available on our website. We are delighted today to be joined by two excellent guests who each bring critical perspectives to this issue. Melissa Dalton, a senior fellow and deputy director of the CSIS International Security Program and director of the Cooperative Defense Project. Prior to joining CSIS, Melissa served in a number of positions at the U.S. Department of Defense in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy from 2007 to 2014. And Fatima Shehu Imam is the founder and executive director of the Rehabilitation, Empowerment, and Better Health Initiative, an organization that promotes and protects women's rights and empowerment in northeastern Nigeria. Fatima is also a member of the International Federation of Women Lawyers, where she advocated for women and girls, in particular survivors of sexual and gender-based violence. So welcome to you both. Thank you so much. So Melissa, let me begin with you. 
and ask what, in your view, is driving gender-based violence across multiple armed conflicts, and how is that tied to the changing nature of war itself? I know you've done a lot of work on the erosion of protection for civilians, and how does that tie in with the kind of war and crisis we see today? Right. So I think uh, behind this this erosion of the rules-based order is a fundamental shift in approaches by countries like Russia and Iran, um, but also non-state actors like the Islamic State and al-Qaeda and their affiliates that are taking an alternative approach to world affairs and the relationships with civilians to include women and girls. And this is having effects on conflict and shaping the normative landscape of battlefields. In Syria in particular, we've seen an abandonment of international humanitarian law and the law of armed conflict in terms of how Bashar al-Assad has prosecuted that war using uh, systematic torture, unlawful detentions, rape, and a number of other tactics in a very deliberate attempt to threaten the population and seek to shift the political and security environment to his advantage. And Fatima, you have just arrived from Borno State in northeast Nigeria, where the kinds of things that Melissa was just describing is something you've been seeing on a virtually daily basis. Can you give us a sense of how are women and girls impacted by this erosion of protection of civilian populations? Thank you very much, Janet, for having me. Yes, I think the picture that she paints is quite familiar to me. Just to say that Borno State has been experiencing this insurgency for the past 10 years. And um, the Boko Haram and this is ins- the Boko Haram insurgency. Uh, yes, the Boko Haram insurgents actually in the beginning were not targeting women and girls. They were mainly targeting government and government buildings and parastatals. But then gradually around 2012, it started manifested itself through abductions and kidnappings, forced marriages, where for some reason in the beginning it was for them to get these women and girls satisfy some traditional roles of cooking, being their wives, procreating, because in their own ideology also they would want to have offsprings that would continue with their ideology. But then it was becoming worse in the sense that women who were able to escape from captivity or who were rescued recount experience in the Boko Haram camp, which is very horrific. Can you tell us what sort of stories you were hearing? What kind of cases have you seen of women who were abducted and what happened to them? Most of these women are abducted in their homes on the way to the farms or to the market, some girls in schools. One significant future is the forced marriage. Women and girls are married several times. And then also the forced labor. They experience how most of them are virtually like slaves, domestic helps without any form of payment. And then the issue of rape, for example, is very strongly emphasized by these women where the men usually just come and satisfy themselves with these women and girls that are available at any time. Usually at times when they come back from fighting or from conquering villages and they turn successful, they have a whole harem of women where they just go in to satisfy themselves. And this can be women of all ages, 
women old enough to be their mothers and their grandmothers and they tell you sometimes how they feel they say fatima i feel so dirty sometimes we are treated like dogs that amongst other experiences we find very disturbing from what we get from these women when they return back and this element of trying to undermine girls access to education women's empowerment women's leadership how do you see that playing out in some of the conflicts melissa that you've been looking at yeah so to further unpack the the case of syria quite tragically before the the conflict there uh, syria actually had relatively high levels of of education publicly available for citizens including the female population and i think what we've seen through the the forcible displacement the conflict and then this targeted approach to gender based violence is lack of access to education as well as to to public health facilities and the deliberate cutting off of access for political control of populations. So what does that look like? What are some cases that you've seen or areas of Syria that have really crumbled under the weight of these abuses and where the role and the voice of women and girls has sort of evaporated in the process? So, you know, within regime controlled territory there have been areas that have been deliberately besieged over the course of the conflict. They were contained within their communities the seeds of opposition that really spanned across the population to include men women younger generations and the regime has taken through its security and intelligence apparatus a very broad approach to characterizing anyone who has supported or is remotely related to anyone that might be implicated or have information about the various opposition groups and so the provision of services whether it's health whether it's education food other types of public goods are used as leverage with the population uh, to deliberately target and constrain their ability to live day to day until they are willing to give up information and then of course there is imprisonment there is torture that comes as part of the Assad regime's toolkit as well And for the Islamic State, we've heard a lot about the abuses associated with that group. Are there any particular areas that you would highlight in terms of the impact on women and girls? Absolutely. During the Islamic State's height of of its caliphate in uh, northeastern Syria, eastern Syria, and into western Iraq, we saw the deliberate subjugation of women, strict dress codes and stoning for any violations of the dress code as well as a constrained access for mobility of women and children within the streets really a tyranny of fear but at the same time a very perverted sense of of order on their terms in terms of access to some schooling that accorded with their strict interpretation of Islamic theology their world views access to services uh, so long as civilians comported with their principles and values again so called Fatima you've described the way that the displaced persons camps have attracted more attention to the issue of gender-based violence because of the volume of women and girls who are crowded there to 80% or more of the displaced are women and children so can you describe to us why the issue of gender-based violence 
is coming out more because of what we're learning from these women in the displaced camps? Yeah, we are aware because of the displacement, we now have a lot of people being accommodated within the metropolis, which is Meiduguri Metropolitan Council. And just to say that at a point in time, Boko Haram was in control of more than half of the 27 local government in Borno State. So that forced a lot of people to flee their communities. And even after... The communities were regained back by military. Most of them could not go back because security remained very tense and fragile around those areas. So that means most of the people that we have in IDP camps are women and girls. And just to say that these women and girls are mostly women with no education and have lost their means of livelihood. And as such, this situation of displacement actually added to their vulnerability. These are women with families who have now all of a sudden become heads of households and as such were looking for means to support themselves and it could be anything. A lot of them developed negative coping mechanisms. We have a lot of cases of survival sex. We have a lot of cases of exploitation and abuse. And then of course, rape, because there's a direct relationship between lack of empowerment and sexual and gender-based violence. So women who cannot afford 200 naira to buy a sanitary pad for their monthly circle. Women with two or three children who do not have anything to sustain them. These children wake up in the morning and all that they know is they want to eat. And these mothers are placed in a situation where they will have to trade their bodies so they get food to support their families. So I think the reason why we're seeing an increase is because of the high population that is now within Meiduguri. Like I said, most of these women have lost their husbands. Most of them are also probably in the bush. And that has led to them being actually very vulnerable. How does these attacks on women and girls and these attacks on the civilian population, how does that undermine the resiliency of populations? What are you seeing in some of the conflicts that you're working on? I think it protracts the conflicts in ways that are incredibly harmful, not only to the local population, but the ripple effects as these people are displaced into different communities and carry those legacies with them, the socioeconomic effects, the psychological effects, and then how those communities have to find ways to absorb them then has impacts on on those communities. And so you see these conflicts um, becoming more protracted, not only in time duration, but also geographic. And Fatima, that links so much to the work that you're doing in trying to work with some of these women to reintegrate them into communities, many of them having undergone horrific experiences. Why is it important for these communities to welcome, to reintegrate these women? And, and what are you seeing in that process? I think to start from the question of how it affects community and community's resilience, I think it's important for us to understand that Boko Haram's targeting of women and girls is not only deliberate but strategic in the sense that they recognize the roles that women actually play in bringing communities together and the roles that they play in peace building. And so... Besides, the name of Boko Haram loosely translates to Western education is unlawful or sacrilege. So they know also that education is the determinant of a community's progress and development. So when we have population in northeastern Nigeria, which is mainly women, and they target those women, then it's deliberately targeting the progress and development of such communities. So that is deliberate. And then 
in trying to reintegrate these women, usually these women actually return back to communities broken, traumatized, some of them with a lot of diseases, unwanted pregnancies. So communities usually do not welcome the idea of the integration process. First and foremost, they feel that these women have gone through a process of radicalization, been in contact with Boko Haram for such a long period, so there is no trust. They do not actually feel safe around these women and girls. They feel threatened by their presence, and so they do not want to associate with them. And then the idea that these women also come back with pregnancies and children, and there's this notion of bad blood, that the blood of the fathers run through the veins of the children. As such, they will also continue to propagate the ideology of their fathers and so communities actually look at these children with disdain and do not want to associate with them as well. Can I ask you also, we had talked about the scale of the problem and trying to get a handle on how big is this in northeast Nigeria. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you're trying to analyze the numbers that we're talking about now? Yes, sadly, there is no data that can tell you specifically this is the exact number of women and girls that are abducted. But just to paint a picture for the understanding of our audience, in one school at a particular time, over 276 girls were abducted. Is and that the Chibok girls? The Chibok girls abduction, which has gained global attention. But then that is to tell you that abductions happen almost on a daily basis, even as I speak to you. Women in their 20s, in their 50s, in their hundreds, are abducted in communities, in villages, almost on a daily basis. So looking at the duration that this conflict has taken, then if we now multiply the number of days by the number of women that we can realistically say have been abducted, then we're looking at a massive number, a very huge number of women and girls have been abducted and sadly nothing is being said about them. Nobody is doing anything about them. You know, you don't hear anything about this woman. Um, the best we hear is about the Chupo girls, but most of these women are still in captivity under very dire situations. I wonder, Melissa, if you could talk a little bit about some of the ways that this has been carried out in the countries you're looking at. We think about the Yazidi situation, for example. Why were they targeted in that way? Why was that a tactic? The Yazidi tragedy in Syria and in Iraq is just that, in the sense that um, here was a minority population um, that was deliberately targeted by the Islamic State, um, much in the way that, that Fatima has, has outlined in northeast Nigeria, in the sense that here was a vulnerable population that could be exploited by the Islamic State for their own purposes coming off the battlefield to propagate their ideology in, in impregnating these, these women, holding them in captivity, capturing them at a very young age and transporting them um, along with them in ways that have been incredibly detrimental to that minority population. So quite a tragedy. And and the ripple effects that, that you see generationally is these women try to reintegrate into their communities and, and a very mixed record in terms of at the individual family level, the level of acceptance that a woman might receive very honor-bound communities, the stain both psychologically and in, in other senses of the word they, they may carry with them is quite profound. But into this mix, you, you also see other civilian female populations that have been exploited by the Islamic State choosing to take a different tack 
coming out of this exploitation um, in some of these minority communities, for example, and, and in the Kurdish community in northeastern Syria, uh, many of these women um, going on to take leadership roles in their community to try to build subnational governance structures, joining the ranks of local militias to fight back against the Islamic State. It's really quite re- remarkable under the circumstances. That element of the resiliency and the leadership of women in these communities is quite striking. And Fatima, I know that you have talked about that as well in terms of the importance of us outside donors, humanitarian responses, others who are trying to support civil society or other uh, actors on the ground who are trying to address this in their own communities. What do you see as the importance of women's leadership? I think what we need to do as international community, as donors, is to recognize and appreciate the role of women generally in terms of crises and conflicts. You know, women are generally the first responders. They are always there on the scene. And even during conflicts, women have always been there, you know, to help each other, to support the community. And as such, we are supposed to come from that perspective of empowering them to continue what they're doing. So recognizing the fact that women, especially women-led organizations, to be part of the leadership structure would ensure that women who don't have a voice will be carried along as well. We're talking about women who have not gone to school. So the nearest they have to representation is through women-led organizations and women groups. So the more we empower these women to speak on behalf and represent on behalf of these marginalized and vulnerable women and girls, then the better for impact that we're trying to achieve as international community, as donors as well. And the broader agenda on women, peace and security, which really highlights the peacemaking and resiliency role of women and girls when they are given a seat at the table, when their voices are heard. How does that play out in some of the conflicts you've seen, Melissa? Absolutely. It's a it's an incredibly critical role for women, um, whether it's at the subnational governance level, at the national level, in forming constitutional committees for the future of, of their countries, um, as well as on the, the multinational scene. I think the statistics speak for themselves in terms of the benefits of having women and diverse voices and decision-making capacities at whatever level we, we consider. And given the central leadership role that women traditionally play in their community, in, in shaping the next generation. It's absolutely vital to be placing them at the, at the center of these conversations. We've often looked at some of these difficult, sometimes seemingly intractable conflicts and wonder, is there a military solution or is this a political crisis? And what is the role then of civil society organizations, the rule of law and protection of civilian populations, uh, women's leadership in the resolution in a sustainable way of these crisis situations. Would you like to address that in terms of Northeast Nigeria, and then we'll turn to the Middle East? Yeah, I think, like I said, we are in our 10th year of this insurgency, and it has been military offensive all the way, and we cannot say that we have seen any remarkable success. So Also abuses by the Nigerian exactly, security forces. Exactly, where most of the abuses have been perpetrated by the security forces as well. We have seen instances where security officers burn communities that are accused of rape, abductions, and all sorts of violence perpetrated against communities. So... Uh, What is needed is political will. 
there needs to be that political will on the part of government to ensure that all actors are brought to the dialogue table. We need to dialogue because as civil society actors, we always advocate that whoever is on the other side is also part of us. They are our brothers, they are our sisters. So it is always good to look at solutions beyond just the military offensive. And that will require the political will because nobody would come and solve our issues for us from anywhere. Nobody will come and bring or hand the solutions to us. It has to start from us, within us, but most importantly for government to take lead in that process so that all actors will be brought to the table to arrive at the last solution to this problem that we are in. To build upon uh, Fatima's excellent points, I, I think that's absolutely essential when it comes to considering a conflict like Syria. And I think, unfortunately, the case of the conflict on the ground is that the atrocities likely will continue, both in regime-held territory uh, as Assad consolidates control, and unfortunately now also in the Northeast uh, with the Turkish intervention and the local dynamism on on the ground, that really it's, it's going to be a question of what the international community can do along four lines lines of effort, the first being seeking humanitarian access to vulnerable populations across the border, um, whether that's in Idlib in the northwest, where there are three million people, mostly women and children, that are currently besieged on all sides by um, Assad, Turkey, and Russia and Iran. And then now following the Turkish intervention into the northeast, there are concerns about humanitarian access there. Access is important because with that comes civilian protection, the ability for humanitarian actors to go in, assess the baseline, revisit, you know, a few weeks later to see how things are progressing or not. And by their very presence, an international third party presence provides protection to these communities. And this has to be reinforced at the UN, multilateral institutions, donors, as well as as in the region. There also needs to be a concerted effort to expose acts by actors like Russia, Iran, and non-state actors that are prosecuting these, these violations of, of civilians, and including women and girls, via diplomatic channels, via state-based information operations uh, to, to push back against them. Thirdly, there is an incredibly vulnerable population right now in northeastern Syria at a camp called Al-Hol, where the wives and children of the Islamic State are being detained and are mixed with an IDP population. The future of of this population is incredibly in doubt as the local protection units that have been surrounding these camps and and prisons are being pulled away increasingly by the Turkish intervention to, to the north. So there are risks of these populations, if there are extremists among them, fading into the broader population, and then for those that may just be suspected but are actually just quite vulnerable, not getting the the humanitarian care and and reintegration uh, pathway that that are quite necessary. And then finally, um, seeking justice and accountability for atrocities uh, that that have been committed, concerted action and coordination among civil society, NGO and advocacy groups, media organizations to collect data and then to prosecute at a state-based level. We've seen uh, recent actions by states like Germany to take Syrian officials to court and prosecute them, which is promising, but uh, much more needs to be done. And Fatima, you also are a part of the Federation of Women Lawyers in Nigeria. Do you want to say a word about the issue of accountability? 
Yeah, um, accountability is very important, um, but also to add to what she was talking about, access to justice. Um, it's very important that victims and survivors actually access justice because for us in the North, is that is what is actually hindering reintegration processes because unlike other forms of war, the Boko Haram insurgency is being perpetrated by people known to these communities. So your brother is killed by somebody that you know that is probably your neighbor or a friend. So if we now talk about reintegrating these perpetrators back into the community, communities feel they have not gotten justice. So how do we ensure that the reintegration process goes along the line of ensuring that also survivors and victims also get the justice that they deserve? But then most importantly, what do we mean by justice in this context? What does it mean to communities when you say they should have justice. These are, at this moment, very challenging because the Nigerian government started a safe corridor where perpetrators are being de-radicalized in the hope of reintegrating them back into communities. However, that became very challenging because IDPs in camps do not get the treatment that these perpetrators are actually getting. They sleep in very comfortable houses in the name of camps for de-radicalization under mosquito-treated nets and being fed three times daily, while IDPs in camps do not get either of this and are feeling as if government is treating the perpetrators in a better way. To the extent they are now thinking, where should we actually be? These are perpetrators, these are people that have admitted to committing these atrocities and are being treated this way. So there's this is a case of a group of the de-radicalized being brought into IDPs and there was this massive protest by people rejecting them to be brought into communities. So these are really great issues that need to be looked upon, probably for communities to decide for themselves what they want as a justice and how to go about ensuring that they assess the justice that they want or that they deserve. These issues of justice and accountability, the prevention and response to gender-based violence, ensuring protection of the civilian populations and the ability of girls and boys to go to school for communities to be able to rebuild after these horrendous attacks on them and on their communities. These are the challenges of our time. And we're lucky to have people like you both working on these issues, Fatima on the ground, doing very risky and courageous work. We are so honored that you came and we are thrilled that you are here to give some voice to what's happening on the ground. And Melissa, your analysis of these trends and complexities of the crises we're dealing with are extremely helpful as we look at this very uncertain and disordered world. So thank you both. Thank you thank very you. much. And thank you all for joining us for the Take Is Directed podcast. As always, we invite you to subscribe to Take Is Directed so that you never miss our latest episode. For more information about our upcoming events and recent publications, please visit the CSIS.org Global Health Policy Center program page.